My name is Roseanne Longmore, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of CoralFlow. Femtech to us is empowering every woman who wishes to breastfeed to do so, using knowledge and information so they can choose best in how to feed their baby. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast brought to you by Fem Health Insights, the leaders in women's health, market research, and consulting. In this show, we have meaningful and provocative conversations with Fem Health experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and today's episode, I interview Roseanne Longmore, CEO and co-founder of Coraflow. Prior to Coraflow, Roseanne worked in financial services for 15 years specializing in wealth management. Coraflow is a company producing the product called Coro, C-O-R-O, the world's first accurate breastfeeding monitor, enabling parents to know exactly how much milk their baby is getting through a tech-enabled nipple shield that connects to an app. Neither moms nor researchers have been able to accurately quantify how much breast milk is actually coming out of the human breast until now. Founded in 2017, Coraflow holds a worldwide patent for Coro and has won numerous European and global innovation awards. To date, the company has raised over $8 million in funding. In this interview, we discuss global breastfeeding trends in the past and present, reasons someone may not be producing enough breast milk, and the technology behind Coro. This is a great opportunity to learn more about the importance of tackling breastfeeding and how femtech technologies not only benefit women directly, but also indirectly by creating tools for doctors and researchers to learn more about the basic physiology of females. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Roseanne, welcome to the show. Hi, Brittany. How are you? Thanks for having me. I am so excited to have you. Uh, last time we saw each other was in Tokyo, I think. It was, it was. It was what an amazing experience that was. It really, honestly, um, was incredible. I've never had so much fun as karaokeing with femtech founders and investors in Tokyo. Like that, uh, that's a high bar to pass. It was amazing. Yes, indeed, it is. And uh, it was just incredible to see those companies that were over there. And I'm still in touch with so many of them, particularly the, the, the companies in the United Kingdom and London, where I'm over there all the time. So, yeah, it was it was wonderful all around. Yeah, I definitely feel like seriously bonded to these global individuals. Uh, and you, you are one of them. So uh, let's kick off uh, the show learning a little bit more about you. Our listeners always love to learn about our guests because, you know, we don't typically uh, as young women or men say, we want to work in femtech. Somehow we end up here though. So kind of tell us a little bit about your personal journey. You know, where are you from? Where are you calling us from today? What was your profession before? And how did you end up here working in women's health? Okay, so um, I'm calling you. I'm here in Dublin, Ireland, and um, but I'm originally from the Midlands of Ireland. And I guess I would have followed a very kind of traditional trajectory through like secondary or what you call high school and then into university. And I did a degree and ended up working in finance. So I was kind of 16 years in finance and um, in wealth management 
um, and working in the biggest stockbroking firm in Ireland. And uh, an opportunity came my way with um, my cousin and his wife. Um, so my co-founders are actually family. We kind of, the idea kind of happened organically and I was, I'm always at their house. And so we were first time founders, all of us. Um, our CTO, my cousin is an electronics engineer. His wife is a medical doctor. And then I was in finance. So when we had the idea for CoralFlow, it happened really organically. And I think I had, because of my background in finance and I, you know, lean heavily towards project management, I had always kind of worked with high net worth individuals. So uh, people who had made their own money and become, and you know, watching Dragon's Den, that's like our version of Shark Tank. I was always really fascinated with people who had built their own business as opposed to any other type of wealth. I always found that really interesting. So when the opportunity presented itself, like we were all a little bit older. And as I said, first time founders, none of us had done this before. We've all been working in, you know, staying in our lane in a particular industry. And um, we just thought, OK, look, this is an amazing opportunity. And we just made the decision to go for it. So yeah, we're we don't have any experience in this area prior to Coroflow. Was anyone breastfeeding at the time? Yes. So Helen, my <laughs> co-founder, who's our chief research officer, and uh, Helen is a medical doctor and a hospital consultant. And Helen and Jamie's first baby was only two kilos full term, so about four and a half pounds full term, so not premi. And Helen really wanted to breastfeed. And because her first baby was so small, she was really even further incentivized to, or motivated, should I say, to, to breastfeed and uh, knowing the importance of it. So um, when she kind of uh, came into the issue of, you know, anxiety, concern around how much milk her baby was getting, um, that's when the idea was uh, born, you know, for the pun of it. You really landed up with the perfect trifecta of a woman experiencing a real problem and she's being a doctor, her husband is in technology and then your finance. That is like the perfect CEO, CTO, CSO combo. So that is amazing. Why don't you tell our listeners what is Coraflow? Okay, so Coraflow is the world's first accurate breastfeeding monitor. So I guess the background or maybe to explain the problem that we're solving the World Health Organization recommends women to exclusively breastfeed to six months um, because there's just thousands, over 2,000 um, peer-reviewed clinical studies on the importance of breastfeeding, not only for the baby, but also for the mother and, you know, in society as a whole. So when you look at this, the issue globally, the amount of women who start or initiate breastfeeding is so high. And then when you look at the six-month mark and that drop-off rate, and, you know, on a, like on average in Europe, only 13% of women get to the six month exclusive breastfeeding target. And in the United States, it's about 24% at the moment hit that target. So when you, when you look at the reasons why women stop breastfeeding, so these are women who've chosen to breastfeed and why are they stopping sooner than they want to? The, one of the number one reasons globally is concern regarding low supply. So basically not knowing if their baby's getting enough milk. Um, so this was the, the initial problem, and this is the problem Helen was having personally. So core, we developed Coroflow. So Coroflow is a standard silicone nipple shield. So these nipple shields, women wear these. Currently, they're used for skin protection. They're ultra-thin silicone or for issues around oversupply or women with inverted nipples. So you can go into your pharmacy and buy these for like 10 or $15. So there, this was a very known solution in terms of the form to try and fit the technology. So what we were, what we have innovated and invented 
a lot of companies have been trying to do this, but essentially we were the first to fit a microflow sensor technology in the form of a standard silicon shield. So the mother simply wears this shield like any other shield. And as she's feeding her baby, all of the data comes up in real time on the app on her phone. So it's the very first ever uh, breastfeeding monitor accurately. So it's simply then the mom just simply washes it in warm soapy water and it's left to air dry. Uh, there's no sterilization required. And then it's simply placed in the pod and it is charging there in its unit. So once you close the unit, you can charge it and uh, put it in your pocketbook and you can charge it on the USB-C uh, and throw it in your bag. And there you have it charging oh, on the go. This is so cool. I remember <clears throat> seeing this in Tokyo and being like, the future's here. So for those uh, listening and not seeing what uh, Roseanne was just raising up, and by the way, y'all, please follow our LinkedIn channel, our social media channels to see little clips of the video of this interview. But to kind of describe, it looks to me like a uh, baby bottle nipple, but very, 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 very thin, super, super thin. So instead of that thick nipple top uh, of the bottle, it's super thin and it gets placed directly over the female breast nipple. And it looks like there's a little bit of software or some kind of technology right on the tip of the, that nipple. Oh, also on the base of it, of, of it as well. And that is what is measuring the amount of milk that's coming out of that, of that nipple. Wow. That is super cool. Um, you mentioned some, a statistic before I wanted to kind of double click on, you said in the UK, 13% of women make it to the six months of exclusive breastfeeding in the U S it's 24%. Is there, uh, any speculation as to why it's higher in the U S than the UK? I would have thought opposite because it sounds like the EU has a heck of a lot more support for mothers than the U S does. So what do you guys know? What's the difference between uh, those two countries and why it's higher in the US? No, sorry. Um, just to correct you, it's in Europe as a whole. If you take every country in Europe, the average uh, is 13% of women reach the six one target. Oh. In the UK, actually only 1% of women reach the <gasps> 6 one exclusive 1%? Target. Yeah. yeah so, okay, um, even more so. Look, why? Yeah, yeah. So, well, look, there's loads of reasons why women stop breastfeeding, like going, particularly in the United States, it's going back to work, uh, perceived inconvenience, uh, you know, culturally um, discomfort. Um, so there's loads of reasons. But when you look at every country across the globe, the one of the top three reasons always is concern regarding low supply. So women are unsure if their baby's getting enough milk. So if you can imagine for a mother who is bottle feeding her baby, she can see exactly how much milk her baby is getting. And this mm. is hugely reassuring. And this reassurance simply doesn't exist for the breastfeeding mother. So when women are unsure or uncertain, or particularly in instances where there might be a question over the baby weight and all of the reversible issues, like if a mother has worked with lactation uh, support and consultants, around the reversible issues like latch, um, you know, and they're still uncertain, then, you know, introducing formula is the next step. So what we're trying to do is for the mothers who have chosen to breastfeed and they want to breastfeed, um, we want to kind of bridge that gap with information and knowledge for the mother to know, yes, my baby's getting enough, I can keep going, or no, there's a, there's a supply issue here, I need to seek assistance. Mm. Do you ever find that, um, you know, one of the things we talk about in femtech is, you know, medical gaslighting. And a lot of times that's 
under the umbrella of women's pain not being believed or their symptoms not being believed. But is there any kind of medical issue, uh, like cultural or societal or psychology issue here where doctors might be potentially either directly or indirectly blaming moms for their baby's weight? Or do you ever find that maybe women are feeling like they need this data because they're feeling pressured from the medical system or any kind of other bias, maybe from their partner or family? There's a couple of different um, facets to your question. So one, we would say okay, the current methodology for lactation support and, and breastfeeding, um, there was a big, uh, obviously, the breast is best is a, a campaign um, that I, I think is there's kind of a move away from that, uh, essentially, because the premise is that with that, that every woman can breastfeed with enough training and support, every woman can do this. So if a mother doesn't, if she feels stigmatized or polarized that she is either not trying hard enough or she's not doing it correctly. Now, anecdotally, like up until uh, the last 20 years, um, they believed that the physiological, five, less than 5% of women had a physiological um, issue breastfeeding. So they did have issue of low supply. But doctors now believe that this could be 15, up to 15 to 20 percent of women have a low supply issue, particularly in countries like the United States, where there are high levels of maybe polycystic ovary syndrome or diabetes or obesity. So these need to be now measured. But essentially, we're, we're working in a vacuum of no information because essentially, you know, using Coro, doctors can now establish what is a, a normal milk supply. At the moment, every country in the world, America, Ireland, the UK, everyone has a different uh, base guideline. Um, so we're really, we're kind of operating in with a lot of misinformation. And really now for the first time using our product, these academic and medical research studies can now be conducted using the world's first uh, volume sensor. So and then to your question, obviously, back in the 70s, there was huge um, issues with the breastfeeding rates drop off um, and the, with the formula companies coming in. So what we find is that generations like our, me and our age group, our mothers and grandmothers lost that skill of breastfeeding and that wasn't being passed down. So there's another cultural knowledge gap in some countries as well. So you know, doc between doctors, the medical community and lactation, you know, it's kind of created the, you know, an issue for women where now hopefully knowledge can fill that gap. And obviously there's been huge strides, like we see in uh, breastfeeding rates slowly increasing in the United States and in Europe, very slowly, but they are going up. And that is due to the huge work that the World Health Organization and that medical professionals have done educating and uh, women and making them aware and helping them with those type of reversible issues. So, um, and hopefully we will uh, see those continue to rise. So I have a small obsession with whales. I think whales are really cool, like mammals that live in the ocean. They're like one of the few animals in the world that have menopause. Like, I think whales are awesome. We know that blue whales feed their babies 100 gallons of breast milk a day, right? And now what I'm hearing you say is that we actually don't know how much breast milk humans are doing because we haven't measured it. So I'm like, here I am, I have this fact about blue whales breast milk volume, and yet we are kind of in the dark about human breast milk. What are some of the estimates in terms of how much breast milk a baby should be eating every day or how much a woman even is capable of producing every day? What are some of those numbers just in a ballpark? 
Well, you see, nobody really knows because it's that kind of self-regulated system. Like the the, the mother's body will produce enough breast milk for her baby at that particular time, um. depending on the baby's temperature. So, and, and that's where really Coro comes into its own. Now, outside of the, the consumer market where women can buy Coro and they're at home and they're not sure, and hopefully the information they get from Coro will be the decision they make and continue breastfeeding or not. But then if you take our... Um, you know, our kind of ambitions aside from the our commercialization with the academic and medical community, for the first time in the world, they can look at those um, variables, mother to mother, baby to baby. So we work with a number of research groups around, you know, does a mother's um, BMI impact her milk supply? Nobody knows, um, you know, does a mother on diabetes medication, does that impact her supply versus a mother not on that medication? You know, if it's a mother's first baby versus her second or third baby what are those variable uh, issues and are you know conditions and how do they impact uh, breast milk supply so really we are you know outside of our you know the commercial aims of providing this product to the market we are working with these numerous research groups and a number of them in the United States on all of these external factors that impact breastfeeding that have never been they've been able to study before until Coro. Yeah. I mean, I'm already, th- I'm thinking race, I'm thinking diet, I'm thinking exercise, you know, there's all of these really awesome femtech, like I'm thinking the Lactamo ball um, with Etta out of Australia. And it's this ball to help massage the breast. But like, imagine if she could actually use Coraflow to show if women use the Lactamo ball, they're, you know, increased by 20% of production and you know um it is it's really exciting and i didn't even think about um what medications i know we do talk about medications entering the breast milk but how does it potentially affect the production of the breast milk or the age of the mother you know we're aging now we're getting older as moms and um how does that affect production i mean there's the scientist in me obviously is is overwhelmed with questions <laughs> and excitement and absolutely particularly that's quite relevant that is a bit of a difference between the US market in Europe is um, obviously the pumping market is I would say much much bigger in the United States because women go back to work so much sooner so what we see there is um, you know you know pumping is really not the same as breastfeeding in terms of the you know using uh, pumping as a a way of estimating um, breast milk supply is 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 not um, is not really accurate because of those psychological factors related to breastfeeding so it's not direct uh, it's not it's not a real-time measure um, a lot of women don't like to pump because of the you know the cleaning the bottles the sterilizing so you know oftentimes we get um we get comparative pumping but in fact it's quite different in that um we can actually now for the first time as you say measure production in real time at source essentially yeah well you know so you're saying pumping is not the uh same experience as a natural breast feeding with the baby's mouth do you find that coraflow interrupts that suction at all like what research have you done what protocols have you done to show that it's just like natural breastfeeding well, I mean, production of um, in pumping, the production is a totally different mechanism. It's a sucking mechanism or sorry, it's a pumping uh, mechanism as opposed to sucking, which is what a baby does when they're breastfeeding. So actually the introduction of a shield, the baby is doing the same. It's the same sort of suction. Mm-hmm. So it, um, so that is really interesting. In fact, while we were running our clinical trials and if you can imagine all of our 
Um, our priority was milk volume accuracy. So this is like the holy grail for the medical community and for Coro as a product. We are measuring breast milk volume. But during the course of our clinical trials, what we established was the pulsating sequence of how babies feed. So Coroflow were the first, we were the first company in the world to ever record this uh, data, how babies were sucking. And that information was um, disseminated as novel at the Pediatric Academic Societies Conference in Denver in 2022 by the clinical trial team. And that was like astounding to the medical community because for the first time they could see this sucking, this pulsating uh, pattern. So up until now, there has been no way to measure that in vivo breastfeeding, how babies uh, transfer milk, the pattern and the flow rates until Coro. So um, now it's going to be really interesting because even this uh, element of our product is going to be will be able to be used in a lot of different areas, but particularly probably the most topical one at the moment is around tongue tie research. So um, at the moment, tongue tie is exceptionally topical because there has been like an explosion of these surgeries. And what is what is tongue tied for our listeners? So um, sometimes babies are born with uh, the skin isn't uh, is is still fully formed under the tongue. And a lot of mothers believe or parents believe that their baby isn't latching to the nipple properly because of tongue tie. So doctors do this uh, procedure where they cut under the tongue um, to release that uh, tie. And then with the aim is that mothers can breastfeed more successfully. But in fact, they've never been really able to examine, is this working? Is this actually impacting the transfer of milk uh, or if there's any impact at all? So again, like even notwithstanding what we're measuring in volume, there, there's just huge uh, depth across research for this type of information. So yeah, we are, uh, to your question, sorry, uh, that pulsating sequence that's uh, been peer reviewed and published and uh, we were the first company to, to record this data. This is incredible. In the app, can you uh, mark if you are doing your left or right breast? Yeah, so I'll just uh, bring the app up for you. So basically, that's like really interesting in terms of our user group. So (laughs) when we developed the app, um, so the mom, this is what she would see when she's uh, breastfeeding. So she, you can see, she can see the the graph there or. Yeah, it's a little graph, listeners. It's a little graph that has a milliliter numbers on the top. Oh, and there's a button that says switch. And you can switch between left breast and right breast. And actually in our uh, our very MVP version, we had given this out to mothers to use. And we had lots of different things on the app, all the analytics, days, weeks and months. And actually it was one of our very first ever users who said, no, I, I want to be able to tell left breast to right breast how much volume. And we, we hadn't even thought of it, quite frankly. So uh, we've had so much amazing feedback from women who have used this product. Um, so we've built that into the app. So, yes, yeah, simply you, you switch the shield from left breast to right breast, and then you just tap one button on the app and it'll measure for each breast separately. Well, I'm excited to see that data. Does one breast produce more of the other? Because almost almost 0% of women have the same size breasts on either side, right? And some women have dramatically different sizes. So I wouldn't be surprised if the production was also different. Um, uh, another question I have for you is uh, like data anxiety. I think that sometimes we get a little, little worried in femtech about, you know, well, women should be measuring this and they need to measure that. And like, it, it's so empowering. And then there becomes a point where it's like, 
are we creating anxiety? Right. And so can you kind of talk us through that? Like, where do you balance or what's your, like in, you know, give us your opinion. Like what's your thoughts on giving women too much data to the point that they become over analytical and anxious about their body when they should just breathe and relax more. Yeah, so I think it's probably important to note that Coro, Coro is a consumer product, but we we went to achieve these clinical trials using European publicly funded grant funding because we wanted to align ourselves with the medical professionals. And coming from there, what we're saying is if you are breastfeeding naturally and you have no concerns and your baby's gaining weight, you don't need our product. Like that's it. Like you don't need to introduce even the barrier, even as thin as a shield, unless you require it. So our cohort of mothers is very specific. It's women who have already chosen to breastfeed and they're about to stop because they're unsure. So when we look at that that group, um, there's kind of there's a few different groups it falls into. So we kind of have um, motivated mothers. So if you can imagine a mother who is a premature baby or a baby not gaining weight, and this would maybe account for about 10% of mothers and they will buy coral and they potentially could use the, prod, the coral for a couple of weeks or a few months. Um, and that's very specific. And that, that data will be extremely important to that cohort of mothers. And then we would have very um, similar to American mothers where they're, they're going to go back to work and they're pumping, but they're not sure how much to pump. They don't even how much their baby is feeding during a regular feed or that feed pattern. So they might simply use Coro just to establish, well, how much do I need to pump? How much do I freeze? How much do I need to, you know, um, have on, you know, in 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 the fridge? Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're just using it to establish, you know, um, how much milk their baby is taking. And then finally, we have kind of the what we would call like the data lovers, and like these are these are typically women who um, they're just. A lot of women, they're very concerned on their first baby, Brittany. Like, so they, we, I meet so many mothers and they would say to me, look, I 100% would have bought your product first baby. Like, no doubt, that's the only thing I'm buying. But then they become a confident breastfeeder after a week or two or three, they see that it's working and then they just don't use it again. And then with their subsequent babies, they don't, they're already a confident breastfeeder. So they know now the satiety signs, the wet nappies, but they've got that confidence and reassurance. So they're kind of like typically the the groups. Um, But certainly what we do see is a trend with younger mothers, the millennials and Gen Zs. These these women are a data generation. They have, you know, they're used to tracking their steps. They're used to tracking their, they're burning their calories and they like data and they like to interpret it. Now, so whereas we say, look, if you don't need a shield and you don't need a barrier, you don't need the product. But these women, they love data and they, you know, they, Actually, to be honest, they can't really believe the product doesn't exist already. Like we regularly get asked like, okay, and is it just volume? How is this not out there? They can't believe that in a hospital environment, in a clinical scientific setting, globally, they're still using weighing scales. So the fact that this has come in, um, funnily enough, it's the younger moms who are like, oh, yeah, it's great. It looks so simple. It's, it's I'd buy it. But, you know, like that, it's we really want to be careful about you know, not introducing any barriers to women who are ordinarily not having any problem. That's right. Yeah. Awesome. And and the product is almost ready for purchase. So to give us a little bit of a timeline and how women can buy it. Yeah. So we, back in 2019, like we could have launched our product, but how could we have called ourselves accurate? So as I, I think we've spoken about in the past, 
we're a consumer product, but we really chase that scientific proof of efficacy and we chase that European grant funding. So and now our clinical trials finished in August and Coral Flow is now working, first ever breastfeeding monitor in the world. So now we're building production. So we're going to launch here in Ireland uh, this summer and then going straight into the United States at the end of this year. So end of 2024, we have our website, corobaby, C-O-R-O, baby.com. And moms can, or potential moms or potential customers can register their interest there. And we'll keep that updated with our launch dates. And as well, like obviously, if they have any questions, they can contact us there. This is so incredible. I'd love to ask you a few like kind of femtech business questions for our femtech founders and investors that are listening. What has um, the fundraising experience been like? I know you've done an awesome job with grants. In fact, if you want to speak to that a little bit, because I'm a big proponent of like, go get that government money before you pitch to investors, like get the government money. So, and you've been, you've done that very successfully. Can you tell us a little bit about your fundraising journey? Yes, sure. So um, we've always funded, we've fundraised only by two uh, means, uh, private investors, angels, and um, the grant funding from the government, the Irish government, and from the European Commission. So when we were looking to get our MVP, and we were like, we're six years old now, Brittany, like we've been building this technology for a long time, and then COVID, and then clinical trial. So although it looks like such a beautiful, elegant consumer product, there is so much science, as you say, the material science, the biocompatibility, like there's so By much. By the way, was that required or was that something that you decided to do? No, we decided to do that because, as I said, we could launch as a consumer product. But how? what we wanted was every medical professional, every doctor, nurse, lactation consultant, you know, recommending us as the gold yeah. standard tool in breastfeeding measurement because your listeners will be aware there's so much gimmicks out there for mothers and we wanted to be the gold standard. So we went a, lot, a much longer route chasing that, uh, that gold standard and now to be the first outside of the weighing scales, we are now the first accurate measure in the world. So it's really incredible. So it was, a, it was the, you know, private investors like back in 2017, like the VCs weren't interested. They were like, if the biggest companies and baby companies in the world cannot do this. How can your team in Dublin do this? You know, um, because this is a very, very well-known problem. It's a critically, it's a critical problem, critically felt globally. So we are not the first company to attempt this, but we are the first companies to succeed. And some mm. of the biggest companies in the world have, have attempted this technology and failed. So for us, it was about the expertise on this, the team and it was the miniaturization of technology. So, you know, the the right team at the right time with the right technology and patent protected, the patent mode around everything. So um, we fundraised to private investors and then we, we did qualify because of the health benefits and the health outcomes correlated to breastfeeding. It's like a perfect, it's like the perfect storm for society. We've got doctors, we've got mothers wanting to breastfeed, we've medical professionals, we've got, you know, the World Health Organization, the UN. We everybody wants women to to get to these targets for their health and for the health of their baby and for population health outcomes. So we do qualify. Luckily, we qualify for quite a lot of uh, this type of funding. And in fact, uh, our research partners in the United States are um, a number of them have reached out to us. Two of them are university research centers and all um, of them have NIH funding in place. And they are already um, in the process of obtaining ethics. So coral can be used in their existing breastfeeding research. So globally, you know, we have a lot of uh, supportive stakeholders in the U.S., 
uh, in Europe and, and uh, you know, Australia and beyond. So I would say fundraising is very different in Europe. That's a whole different conversation. It's not the same as the American model. Like the numbers are smaller here, the, particularly in Ireland, the pool of investors is smaller. But I think we were very lucky in terms of the space we were in. When I go out to an investor, I can say there is no product that can do this in the world. And it is not easy for them to go and find out if that's true or not. So I would meet a lot of investors and they're like, oh, my God, crypto, blockchain, AI. And it's confusing. And the business model is confusing. They go out and they can go into a pharmacy or into a big store. They can ask their wife or daughter or sister, like, does this product exist? And is this actually a real problem? And typically they come back knocking the door down saying, okay, you're onto something if you can do this. So we were well-funded from the from the beginning. Um, but as I said, it's always hard. And the current environment is really hard, I would say. The last two years has proven to be very difficult. So, uh, and then as I say, grant funding, we qualify for quite a lot of that. And um, we've always kind of exhausted every avenue of that. So now we're we're building a production. We've, we're doing our Series A, and that has been quite successful to date. So we would love American money, um, but we've. <laughs> I often go. I've been over there once or twice, but um, yeah, we've 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 managed to build a company so far. But obviously, once we launch into the states, we're going to be looking at a far larger funding round. And I think at that point, we'll be talking to a lot more of the American um, uh, investment community. Well, happy to get you over here, get you funded. You inferred that the investors you have are men because you said that they asked their wives or sisters, right? Is that a Ireland thing that most investors are men? Or, you know, um, did you talk to female investors? Were they also interested? Yeah, we have a, I would say 95% of my investors are men, if I could put a number on it. And um, now a lot of that is down to like, I think there is well evidenced reasons why women, um, you know, of a certain age and above don't invest because of their career trajectory and the, the breaks they have to take and pension and maternity leave. Like, I think it's all uh, well evidenced. And I think really for us in terms of um, entrepreneurs and successful exit and entrepreneurs, that's really how you get the system funded. It's mm. uh, people like you who've successfully exited companies can then understand and identify how to invest and why to invest. So I think we're still on that journey. Uh, women, like, you know, they love the product and they understand it. But uh, for the most part, uh, you know, being honest, um, the the investment uh, the, at the, mo- the people who have the money have been uh, the men and for the majority in our case but uh, it's not to say that uh, I don't think there are women out there making decisions those important decisions no I'm I'm right there with you I think that um we do find that some companies we just had Evie on the show vaginal microbiome sequencing and she said that she had 90 percent or more female investors and so but it's vaginal microbiome right and so yeah. men may not have as well of a relationship with the vaginal microbiome versus seeing their wife breastfeeding right they might have a closer relationship to that process than a yeast infection right uh, or feel well, more comfortable it. about empowering this problem in this solution versus talking about BV with their fellow male investors over beer right Um, yeah and like men love this product and that was certainly one of the most interesting things to us for like we couldn't believe men are now like i know femtech is the you know and the the most recent uh 
uh, word I've heard is uh, family tech or, you know, where the men and mothers and fathers are making or, you know, they're making the decision together. Mm-hmm. And what we found quite astounding, actually, was that 40 percent of our inbound marketing is from the dads. And now we don't do any media, um, Brittany, because... You know, if we did, whenever we did any sort of media in the past, we would be inundated with mothers uh, and, and fathers calling from the hospital saying, I don't care if it's not available on the market. I'll be a tester. Give me a pilot. And we don't like to disappoint. So we've really kind of stayed under the radar to date. But however, somehow men were all like 40 percent were finding us. And I'm like, why are they finding us? But essentially, they're there in the middle of the night watching their partner, their wife struggle, holding the baby. And they're actually on the phone looking for a breast milk monitor. Like they're the ones who are kind of coming across us. So we would have uh, we'd have, you know, contact from I can see my daughter. I'm a granddad. I can see my granddaughter struggling, my wife struggling. So. It really is. Um, men are very aware of the health benefits of breastfeeding mm-hmm. and they want to support their partner. So, yeah, it's actually far more that was far more interesting. And uh, it was surprising to us, actually. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, I think that then that then directly speaks to the investor proportion of being men. Right. Because men are often not submitting questionnaires about yeast infections, but sounds yeah. like they are observing the breastfeeding challenges and want to participate. The other question I had, and, and maybe you don't have too much to say about it, but is um, marketing censorship because you're talking nipple shield, nipple shield, right? Uh, nipples. Uh, breastfeeding is often censored as something as unfortunately seen as inappropriate to promote or market. And so I know you haven't done a lot of marketing yet, but do you have some anticipation of how you're going to battle censorship or get around it? Are you going to market more so to doctors that then promote it to patients or direct to consumer? Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, like we definitely are going to like our mass market is direct to consumer, but like that in the background, that academic and medical research is so Mm. important to us. And so we hope that in time that as we all these studies are peer reviewed and and published, that the medical community will, will come behind us. But certainly like our packaging, particularly this packaging, now it's very different. You can see there is no, um, you know, the, the nipple is not showing at all. So this is the box beautiful little baby um but this is very different like this is the one of the only pictures we could get that was acceptable in the united states now in europe there is a lot more uh, freedom around showing um the areola and and, and whatnot but um i always really uh, follow it with interest about how tiktok and instagram you know are these women like you know being allowed to breastfeed and show this. So I think there is a change coming. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly that fo- that picture on the, our box was really for the US market because of that censorship issue. So um, then on our website, um, listeners could go on and see, like we have uh, two videos, a, a 60 second explainer and a 90 second uh, instructional video. And it's it's animated, it's hand, it was a hand uh, animation by a beautiful graphic designer. So um, I don't know. We'll have to wait and see like uh, other femtech products or baby tech, as we call them, like um, Willow and LV, you know, talking to these other CEOs. They've said, look, what women want is 30 second videos of real women, like putting on a nipple shield, latching the baby, you know, this day of, I guess, that type of marketing where the mother is sitting in this perfect, uh, perfect white sitting room with the 
perfect baby, not crying. Like, the, the, you know, the millennials and Gen Zs, they like the realism. Mm -hmm. And um, being able to promote those videos is going to be very, very important to our marketing strategy in the future. Well, this has been so informative. I can't wait for Cora Flow to come out. I'm not breastfeeding yet, but I want one. And uh, <laughs> I guess I'm the data person. But this has been so awesome. We have two last questioners or uh, questions our listeners really love. The first one is, if someone wanted to start a femtech company, what's an area in women's health and wellness that you think still needs innovating? Oh, God, all of them, Brittany. Like, um, but I would say, look, you know, when we were in Tokyo and what I've seen personally in Europe is there's a lot going like fertility tracking is kind of like that's around quite a long time. Um, um, menstrual cycle is kind of fairly well covered it, to what I know. Um, I would say menopause was the next thing. But for me, really, what I would like to see is more um, innovation, but maybe even more clinical studies around endometriosis. I think that's such a massive proportion of the population and it's still so little known about it. So but typically every single area of women's health has been uh, disregarded and has been left in the shadows. So you know, if you have got a good idea, I would uh, recommend. Just go for it. <laughs> Just go for it. Yeah. If it's in women's health, go for it. And yeah. then our last question is, what do you think the women's health or femtech industry as a whole needs the most right now in order to be successful? Money. <laughs> <laughs> I sound like an American now. Um, <laughs> money, uh, money and investment. So yeah, definitely. Like, I mean, uh, everyone is like femtech is kind of falling in a little bit say a corner of that ai space where all of the vcs are talking about it saying they're paying heed to it saying that they have it in their portfolio just follow the numbers Brittany. i don't have to tell you that i'm not entirely convinced i don't track the data the way you do i'm kind of you know i, I keep my head down at coroflow but i i don't believe like i'm often brought to pitches and they say they're interested in femtech and actually i think they're learning from me and i'm like do they really invest? I'm not entirely convinced. So I would like to see, you know, um, who is investing and what are the real numbers. And then secondly, women in the chair, like women making the investment decisions. Like I have plenty of times I've spoken to investors and I'm, I wouldn't say disregarded, but they're like, mm, this is interesting. Great idea. Yeah. It's, it measures milk. Wow. And then they go home or they go back to work and they talk to women and they come knocking our door down, like knocking the door down because they never realized it was a problem. So having women in the room when you're making those pitches or you're making investment decisions or uh, whatever the case may be is really important. Yeah. I'm on a few groups um, that are trying to come up with different financing models for women's health. Like how can we convince the White House to make a fund? How can we convince this, you know, giant institution to make a fund? And one of the ideas I keep throwing out is a fund of funds. And the very brief version of this is it is a pot of money that invests in other venture funds for them to and make investments into startups. So it's like one tier up the up the stream if if you will. And, but I always say, if we're going to do this, one of the things is that we need to require them. If they take our money, if this venture fund wants to take our money, they also have to have these sex ed classes and we can come up with a better word than sex ed, but like we need to educate them on women's health, just like the basic anatomy of it. But then also hear like the top problems and hear the top concerns and here's the market values because founders like yourself are spending so much time doing that 
education. And then they have to go and get convinced by their wife, their secretary, their, you know, female friend, et cetera. Whereas I'm like, if they take the money and they, um, they have to learn about women's health. And so that when they first hear your pitch, they're like, I've heard about this. I know this is a big issue. Like, okay. Instead of you having to hopefully like cross your fingers that they bring it up later. Right. Yeah, a hundred percent. And like like that, so much of my time is spent educating investors on one, the size of the market, like how many women in each country stop breastfeeding because of concern regarding low supply. How many, you know, and then the size of the market, obviously, number one, the number of co- customers. And then obviously, what are the health outcomes? Like what are the like if you can, you know, getting that type of money, can you prove the health outcome of your product or your service to the market, to the government, to you know, the VC? And how is that going to create a return on investment for them? So, yeah, look, it's we're yeah, your your campaign with uh, Femtech Insights into awareness is just phenomenal. And um, even listening back to some of the earlier ones from your your episodes back to 2020 about, you know, I think when investors realize the, the purchasing power of women, and how much they spend and how much the size of the market is worth. But like that, you know, I spend so much of my time doing that rather than even focusing on the technology, yeah. you know, and the and the potential. But look, that's we're all in that together. So um yeah. Well, I'm glad Femtech is in their mouths. We just have to get them to convert, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, uh, Roseanne, exactly. this has been such an awesome interview. Thank you so much. I um, adored you in Tokyo, adore you virtually. Can't wait for Coraflow to come to the US. Um, and I can't wait to see the data you come up with. Thanks a million. And it was so nice to be on this podcast. Thank you, Brittany. Thank you for listening to my interview with Roseanne Longmore, co-founder and CEO of Coraflow. Learn more and sign up for the waitlist at www.corobaby.com. That's C-O-R-O-Baby.com. Okay, Fem fans, it's time to get engaged. If you love the show, then you'll definitely enjoy reading our weekly newsletter. Subscribe at femhealthinsights.com. While there, you can also join our virtual community, which has over 1,000 femtech founders, investors, and advisors you can get insights and feedback from. We have an active events calendar, jobs board, and much more. Please give our social channels for Femtech Focus and Fem Health Insights a follow. The links are in the show notes. And don't forget, sharing is caring. Send this show to a friend or colleague and keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.